Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jason Rylander of the Center for Biological Diversity, who examines the Supreme Court's recent ruling that severely weakens the EPA's power to protect the climate and environment. Emma Kaplan of the group, Rise Up for Abortion Rights, who talks about nationwide protests on the Independence Day holiday against the Supreme Court's ruling striking down women's reproductive rights. And Bill Blum, a Los Angeles attorney and a former state of California administrative law judge who assesses the Supreme Court's multi-pronged attack on individual rights and government authority to regulate corporate abuses. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After 18 days of mass protests and blockades, indigenous leaders in Ecuador won an agreement from the government to cut gas prices and scrap plans to expand mining and oil exploration. On June 13th, the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador began organizing protests across the country calling for economic policy reforms. Protesters blocked traffic and shut down economic activity nationwide before the actions were called off on June 30th in talks with the government. Dozens of people were injured in confrontations with authorities, and at least six died. In negotiations brokered by Episcopal church leaders, conservative President Guillermo Lasso's government agreed to increase fuel subsidies cancel a decree meant to ease oil exploration, revise his mining policy to be more sensitive to indigenous land rights, and work with indigenous groups on economic development policies. While the protests in Ecuador appear to be Latin America's first major political disruption linked to runaway inflation on gas and food prices, they are unlikely to be the region's last. Over the past month, truckers have staged protests in both Argentina and Peru. Meanwhile, as Foreign Policy magazine reports, Latin America's central bankers are boosting interest rates to fight inflation as IMF bailouts in Ecuador and Argentina are tied to ending fuel subsidies. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is one of the most ambitious politicians in the Biden administration. Yet Buttigieg has been nearly silent on rising consumer anger over massive airline flight cancellations, delays, and high ticket prices. The Bureau of Labor Statistics found that airfares increased far faster than the general rate of inflation and far more than justified by higher fuel costs. Over Memorial Day weekend, Delta made last-minute cancellations of over 700 flights, or about 10% of its entire flight schedule. According to the Department of Transportation's February 2022 report, cancellations are running 65% higher than pre-COVID. Yet, as the American Prospect reports, under Buttigieg, DOT hasn't imposed any significant fines against the airlines for failing to issue timely refunds for canceled flights, while these same airlines sit on $10 billion in funds from consumers. 
the airlines received a massive government bailout of over $60 billion, specifically to help prevent massive staff layoffs. But the airlines went ahead and promoted early pilot retirement as a way of saving money while technically not undertaking layoffs. So to the extent that there really are shortages of pilots, the airlines brought this crisis on themselves. For New Mexico environmentalists, the majestic Rio Grande River, which runs through Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas, is at zero hour as it hits historically low levels due to overuse of its waters for irrigation amid the impact of climate change. Moreover, the current drought is accompanied by an aridification of the American West, a prolonged drying out of the ecosystem that scientists say may become a permanent fixture in the region. The number and scope of wildfires are also increasing sharply. New Mexico's Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak Fire has now burned some 315,000 acres. As Yale Environment 360 magazine reports, much of the Rio Grande River, already compromised by channelization, dams, and irrigation, is on a trajectory to disappear and take out the nearby forests, fish, and other creatures that live in or near it. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration foresees historically unprecedented warming during the rest of the century. As climate change bears down, scientists and other experts are asking what can be done to fend off such changes and increase resilience for the six million people and countless birds, mammals, and reptiles that depend on the Rio Grande. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The end of the Supreme Court's 2022 term brought impactful to devastating rulings on women's health, guns, rights of the accused, the rights of tribal nations, and the climate. In West Virginia v. EPA, the court ruled 6-3 to limit the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate greenhouse gases that are a major cause of climate change. The justices ruled that Congress must specifically legislate what the executive branch is authorized to do on so-called major questions, while denying government agencies wide latitude to impose regulations on industry. Of course, the vast majority of members of Congress are not environmental or climate experts and would be unable to write such specific bills. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Jason Rylander, senior attorney with the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity, about the ruling. Here he explains that although the Supreme Court's ruling in the West Virginia v. EPA case is moving the U.S. in the wrong direction, it's not as sweeping as the ruling that reversed abortion rights under Roe v. Wade. He maintains that the Biden administration still has many tools available to address the climate crisis. But Rylander expresses concern that the ruling opens the door to future high court decisions affecting all government agencies that could negatively impact life for everyone in the U.S. 
So this case is really about the 2015 Clean Power Plan, uh, a plan that was developed by the Obama administration that relied on Section 111 of the Clean Air Act to reduce emissions from power plants. And it did that by setting overall caps on greenhouse gas emissions and letting states develop plans to meet those targets. And there are a variety of ways that the states could have met those targets. Uh, they could install or require power plants to install technology at individual plants to reduce emissions, uh, or it author also could authorize a trading or other limitations that could have the effect of shifting transmission to renewables. And I think that's really what got the attention of the Supreme Court, was the idea that this regulation would force a shift from fossil fuel-powered plants to renewable energy plants. Uh, but the plan never actually took effect. Uh, back in, the, right after it was passed, um, the court stayed the rule uh, before the D.C. Circuit ever got a chance to rule on whether it was legitimate. And then the Trump administration repealed it. They developed a different plan that was also never in effect. So the court was really deciding a case about nothing in the sense that there was no rule in place. It's really an advisory opinion that sets some of the terms as to how the Biden administration can move forward with a new regulation addressing emissions from power plants. So this ruling that was handed down at the very end of the Supreme Court term this year, what does it do? Fundamentally, what it does is it curtails EPA's ability under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act to explicitly rely on generation shifting to meet climate goals. Now, if that sounds narrow, it's because it actually is. Uh, the court's ruling really only affects one portion of the Clean Air Act as it was interpreted in the Obama-era Clean Power Plan that never went into effect. So EPA still has authority uh, under Section 111 to regulate power plants in a different way, and it also has authority through other portions of the Clean Air Act, like the National Ambient Air Quality Standards section, uh, where it could regulate greenhouse gases more generally from other sources. And EPA is already working on new regulations to address greenhouse gases from the transportation sector. So in terms of actual impact from the case, you know, it deals with a rule that's not in effect, uh, the goals of which have already largely been met by market forces. Uh, and to the extent it, it prescribes uh, EPA authority, uh, it does so in a fairly limited way. Now, that being said, the way the court went around the decision is really concerning. Uh, they use something called the Major Questions Doctrine, which is a new doctrine that the court has just in a few recent cases begin to espouse. And what it basically says is that when an agency passes a regulation, they're going to look at it to see if Congress spoke clearly to that issue and explicitly gave the federal agency the ability to do whatever it is that the agency is trying to do. And they look at it the words that they use are things like novel or surprising or the rule would have economic or political significance, which is really most rules. And the concern is that this is just a license for judicial activism. So most of the time, Congress passes pretty broad laws. They'll, they'll pass the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or other public health and safety regulations that set a goal in mind, like cleaning up the nation's air and water. And then they will leave to the agency the discretion to figure out how to do that. And statutes vary by the level of specificity. 
But you know, generally speaking, Congress gives the agency an order and says, you go figure it out. And that's especially true in cases where there's scientific questions involved. So Section 111 tells EPA to come up with the best system of emissions reductions. Now that can change over time as technology changes. It involves expert determinations about what would work and what would not. All the kinds of things that Congress doesn't really have the expertise to do. But the court seems to be saying that unless Congress kind of explicitly says you can do X, Y, and Z, then it's not clear if the federal agency can do those things. And what that means is that Congress is kind of no longer able uh, to delegate authority in the way that it has traditionally done it. The courts are stepping in or could continue to step in and kind of impose their own judgment of what is significant or novel or surprising. And as the dissent indicates in this case, that could be quite frightening if the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. That was Jason Rylander, senior attorney with the Climate Law Institute at the Center for Biological Diversity. Find more analysis and commentary on the Supreme Court's ruling in the West Virginia versus EPA case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the aftermath of the Supreme Court's June 24th ruling that struck down federal protections for women's right to access abortions, protests were organized from coast to coast, demanding that action be taken to reverse the High Court's decision that many view as making American women, half the country, second-class citizens, without autonomy or control over their own bodies. In recent weeks, activists have been peacefully picketing outside the homes of justices who voted to criminalize abortion in more than half the states across the country. But the marshal of the U.S. Supreme Court has asked Maryland and Virginia officials to step up enforcement of law, she says, prohibit picketing outside the justices' homes. On the July 4th Independence Day holiday, Rise Up for Abortion Rights organized pro-choice protests in some 60 cities across the U.S. The group urged abortion rights supporters not to wait until the November midterm election to become active, declaring that masses of people have never won or defended fundamental rights by relying on elections. Civil rights, they maintain, were won in the streets. Your reporter spoke with Emma Kaplan, an organizer with Rise Up for Abortion Rights, who discusses the role of protest in reclaiming basic rights that Americans have enjoyed and exercised for decades. The Rise Up for Abortion Rights um, was a coalition, it is a coalition, that was founded back in January um, by Merle Hoffman, Lori Sokol, and Sansara Taylor, who have various political perspectives, but came together under the recognition that the Supreme Court was getting ready to decimate this right and that it was our responsibility to to call people into the streets. And at the time, we went to all the pro-choice groups, the Women's March, Planned Parenthood, all different kinds of groups, and said, you know, we need to actually get in the streets and do what they did in Argentina and Colombia, a green wave of mass resistance to stop this from becoming law. And people told us, one, it won't happen, or two, the best that we can do is wait until after Roe falls. And we're seeing the horrors of that. We're seeing the horrors of what it means to go along with a society in which women are forced to give birth against their will. Millions of us took to the streets 
in defiant mass resistance and didn't stop, I will tell you, I don't know for certain it would have turned out different, but even fascists care about their own legitimacy. And we still have a moment. There's a month now where Congress is in session. People are still very outraged and recognizing what this means, but we cannot squander our time right now. Um, and and that this is why we called for, for demonstrations on July 4th all across the, the country to actually call on people July 4th, July 4th. If women are not free, no one is free. I think what a lot of people are wondering right now, Emma, what are the options available for people who are angry, upset, and frustrated at where our country is headed right now? How can we effectively advocate for legislative and other measures to empower women to have autonomy over their own bodies, make their own decisions regarding their own reproductive rights. What do you see as the most effective means possible at this moment to push for overturning what the Supreme Court has done in striking down Roe versus Wade? I think that Roe v. Wade needs to be codified at the largest level of power nationwide, legal abortion for the whole country now. This, you know, however it can be done, and you'd be surprised the methods that people find to to change things, to institute laws, to issue executive orders. If there's a unruly, nonviolent, disruptive people in the streets, you know, they change their calculations all the time. The the segregationists never had a change of heart, you know. They, but it was the the people they saw. Oh, we're not really going to be able to keep our society going as as we've had it going together, and. I will say that there's, you know, and and people have said, okay, well, let's pass legislation to protect abortion here in New York. I'm all for that. That's very important. But the idea that people are going to travel from different states to tenure, you know, in other places, travel to be able to get an abortion, it's just not realistic that all of these states, all of these clinics are going to be able to serve the mass population. So I don't think we can do this state by state. I think we have to do it it has to be codified at a at a nationwide level, at a federal level, to restore. This is a constitutional right, and it needs to be restored. And there's many things that Joe Biden could do, and so they have to find a means, find a means to make this the law of the land. There's a lot of people who are putting all their energy into getting out the vote this November to defeat politicians that support these extremists on the Supreme Court, and they're tearing down women's reproductive rights what is the importance of protest in this moment beyond just the planning and organizing as important as it is for voting in November? Definitely there needs to be a political defeat served to these fascists in every way we can give expression to it. Um, I think the importance of, of protesting right now, and not just like protest a thousand people, yeah, I'm mad, we go home. I'm talking on the level, people can go and Google, go Google Argentina, go Google Colum- you know, Colombia. It was like so beautiful. It was like millions and millions of people bellowing. We haven't seen it on that scale yet. You know, it could get on that scale. And if we do that, I mean, one, you it actually matters a lot if whether or not the things the Supreme Court does is, is legitimate in the eyes of the people and the eyes of the world. And if people are sitting at home, it gives it like more of a, mm, we kind of don't like it, but we're really not going to like disrupt our lives that much. That was Emma Kaplan, an organizer with the group Rise Up for Abortion Rights. Learn more about their activist agenda and the role of protest and direct action in winning social change by visiting our Between the Lines website 
at btlonline.org. The Supreme Court's extremist six-member majority has now handed down several landmark rulings overturning decades of precedents and settled law on abortion rights, restrictions on guns in New York State, weakening the EPA's ability to regulate pollution and carbon emissions, further tearing down the separation between church and state, and removing accountability for police officers who fail to give criminal suspects their Miranda warnings on the right to remain silent after arrest. This initial set of rulings by the High Court may just be the beginning of a full-scale attack on individual rights and the government's ability to regulate corporate abuses that have been won over many decades. There's growing concern across the U.S. that the Supreme Court could, in the near future, strike down laws protecting access to contraception, same-sex relationships, and gay marriage. Your reporter spoke with Bill Blum, a Los Angeles attorney and a former state of California administrative law judge, who talks about the Supreme Court's current multi-pronged attack on individual rights and government regulatory authority and the power citizens have to resist the erosion of justice and liberty. Clarence Thomas is a barometer that uh, people look to uh, for where the right wing is headed. And in his concurring opinion in the Dobbs case, that's the abortion case, he said that the court should reconsider a variety of privacy-based substantive due process rights, which are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution. They're what we call unenumerated rights. And specifically, he singled out the right to contraception that's protected under Griswold versus Connecticut, the right to sexual intimacy protected by Lawrence versus Texas, and the right to same-sex marriage, Obergefell versus Hodges. So Clarence wants to uh, revisit and overturn all of those precedents, but he doesn't want to stop there. Clarence Thomas wants to overturn the uh, First Amendment defamation protection set forth by a case called New York Times versus Sullivan, It goes all the way back to 1964. Of course, he wants to overturn affirmative action. And most recently, the court has taken up a case from North Carolina, which raises the theory of the independent state legislature. When it comes to um, overturning or intervening in the outcome of elections, and that could be the most dangerous case of all because it coincides with and will meld with the efforts to overturn the next election. So what that theory basically says is that the Constitution, by two clauses in Article I and Article II, gives the state legislature sole authority to determine the outcome of elections within their jurisdiction. That's really a phony and very weak argument, but that's an argument that is gaining steam, and the court has now agreed to hear this case, Moore versus Harper, and it's feared that they will use that case as a vehicle 
to promote this idea. The idea first surfaced in concurring opinions in Bush versus Gore back in 2000. And it's really been a dormant, marginalized idea, but it now has been revived. And so now with this solid 6-3 majority on the court, there really are no outer bounds to what this majority could do, wielding its really supreme authority, no, no pun intended, because the decisions of the Supreme Court are not reviewable within our legal system. So there really isn't any endpoint other than what these justices think is the right and proper thing to do. Bill, that's a pretty bleak picture. In your view, what can be done to rein in this extremist Supreme Court and the decisions they have already made and the rulings yet to come that seemingly want to revisit all the rights won for, you know, 100 years or more? Well, the answer is really political. It's not strictly legal because there's no way to overturn a Supreme Court decision. You can do various end runs around a Supreme Court decision through legislation. So in the abortion area, you could conceivably have a federal abortion rights statute, but there are tremendous obstacles to doing that. First of all, you have to overcome the filibuster in the Senate, and the Democrats at present don't even have 50 votes to do that. That avenue right now isn't available. I think that this um, struggle is going to be a long-term one. People have to understand that even though Alexander Hamilton termed the judiciary the least dangerous branch of government, it has become the most dangerous branch domestically because of its unchecked power. But the people still have the ultimate power in this country. We have to recognize that uh, who sits on courts is very, very important, and we have to build majorities, strong majorities, to return control of the Senate to the Democrats. I mean, I I wish that there was a more progressive alternative to the Democratic Party, but there isn't. And we have to understand that, that while the Supreme Court has the last word under our constitutional system, we don't have to accept these decisions. We don't have to believe that they're correct. We can hold the justices accountable by reminding them every day that they are supposed to be public servants, not kings sitting on high, you know, making rules and issuing edicts ex cathedra for all of us to obey. Those justices are very concerned right now with their legitimacy. Many of them have given public talks about the court losing um, its popularity, the court losing its legitimacy in the eyes of the public, and they're bringing that crisis on themselves. And I think that it's up to all of us to hold them accountable. This is going to be a real long struggle. That was Bill Blum, a Los Angeles attorney and a former state of California administrative law judge, who is also the author of several legal thrillers. Find more perspectives on reigning in the Supreme Court's radical right majority by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. (music) 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.